What's up, fam? Welcome to the Different Stokes Podcast. I'm the wife. He's the husband. I'm the mom. He's the dad. And we are chatting about all things love, life, parenting, and culture. And we welcome you. Let's get into it. Everybody's got a special kind of story. Everybody finds a way to shine. It don't matter that you got not a lot. So what? You'll have theirs and you'll have yours and I'll have mine. And together we'll be fine. Cause it takes different strokes to move the world. Yes, it does. It takes different strokes to move the world. What's up, everybody? It's Meech. And this is Martha. What's up, fam? Welcome to another episode of the Different Stokes Podcast. So glad you're joining us for this episode. How are we doing today? We are doing great. Doing well. We are cold. Yes. We are cold. We We live in the Midwest and we are in the midst of what they call a polar vortex. Yes, we are Anna and Elsa coming to you live. (laughs) Right. Today. Yes. Uh, What? Like, I think last time I checked the temperature, me and my daughter was negative six. With a wind chill of a balmy negative 35. So I stepped out of the house briefly to take out the trash. You know, doing every, doing what good husbands do. Oh, really? Take, wow. Taking out the garbage. <laughs> and uh, it was cold, man. For real, for real cold. So, yeah. So those of you that are in the Midwest that are listening, you know, hope you guys are staying safe. Hopefully by the time you hear this, the it's weather. Over. Yeah, it's over. And it's but not. But just know that this was the different strokes. Polar Vortex edition. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So I hope you guys are staying safe and staying warm, those of you that are uh, in the midst of this whole whole thing. So, But some of you are in the South preparing for Super Bowl, so they're, they're not only warm, but they are highly entertained, I'm sure. Right, right. Yeah, big week for, for the NFL with the Super Bowl. ATL stand-up. I know we got a lot of family down there. In so the A. Yep. So uh, yeah, Rams versus Patriots. You have a you have a prediction? Um, no, because you I watch don't. so much football in I your in your day to day life. I do. I'm a Belichick fan, so he's a great coach. He's so. a cheater. But <laughs> you know, us being um, from Michigan and Tom Brady being a Michigan alum, yes. most people from this area are, are root for the Patriots because the Lions stink and never have made the Super Bowl in the history of life. But. <laughs> But someone's better. Yeah, <laughs> you but pick, man, huh? yeah, whatever. I I, <laughs> I don't want to see the Patriots win again. Is I'm I I have Patriots fatigue. To Did be you honest. have Michael Jordan fatigue when yes. the Bulls won? First of all, we're from Detroit. We hated the Bulls <laughs> when they when they were I mean, winning. I just think the you bad have to boys. We couldn't stand the, the Bulls. Now you can appreciate it after the rivalry is over and you look back on it like, dang, you know, those Bulls teams were great. And I probably will look back on what New England has done. I think they're going for their sixth Super Bowl win. They've been to like eight. But I think this would be their this would be like their sixth win. So I, I just have Patriots fatigue, so I'm I'm rooting for the Rams. They really? just they just moved from St. Louis so to who LA. Do, who do they have that is notable? Like, what's a Rams player that I should Indomitian know? Sue. Remember, he oh, used to play for okay. the Lions. Yes, I do know. Yes, who he, he left is. us, and like most players, to leave the Lions, <laughs> found ha- success. Found success. <laughs> yep. After leaving our yeah, Indomitian Sue would probably be the only person that you would know. Their running back is amazing. His name's Todd Gurley. Mm, he's okay. he's uh, a Georgia alum, so. 
he's getting to play. I don't think he. I don't know that he's from Georgia, but he went to college at Georgia, so he'll be able to play in the state where he went to college. They also have Aaron Donald, who's a great defensive player, one of the best in the NFL. So they got a good team. They got an explosive offense. Yeah. It should be an interesting game. I don't have a dog in the fight, so I could care less. We I used to look forward to Super Bowl Sunday just because it was uh, food-based. <laughs> and we always... <laughs> to eat, of course. Right. So um, we all always made a great spread and had football food. I love, even before um, transitioning to a plant-based diet, loved football food, tailgating food, like the best so that was really all that I really looked for but I mean I think you have to give props to a man that can wear a hoodie with the sleeves cut off that's just something that I admire about Bill Belichick I mean he rocks that thing he owns it with confidence I'm impressed that you remember his first and last name and you watch very little football so (laughs) that is right I'm gonna give you points for that let's just say see this like who is supporting or watching the Super Bowl I personally did not have a problem with the NFL ban and and I'm still not watching the NFL or not supporting the NFL. So Super Bowl Sunday will be no exceptions for me. Yeah, I will admittedly probably watch the game. You know, I haven't watched as much NFL as I have in years past. And that could be because our hometown team is trash. <laughs> but, you know, needless to say, I will probably tune in on Sunday I'll probably be rooting for the Rams. And because you're not cooking the usual spread, nobody's coming over. So if anybody wants to invite me to watch the game, you know, have have your boy over. Let's try our hand at a vegan. Oh, heck no. Tailgate. You know what? Let's not. You know, let's get into this take two segment. Let's let's not even talk about a vegan Super Bowl spread. Please, God. Down to the NFL. No thanks. Moving on. All right. So take two. We introduced this segment in our last episode. I'm going to give Martha three things. She only can take two. I'll participate as well, but you only can take two. Here we go. We're going to go TV shows this time. I think last time, what did we do? Actors. We did actors last time. So TV shows, I'm going to give you three. You only can take two. So we're going to go A Different World, Martin, and Living Single. Martin, a different world, living single. What two would you take? This is actually easy for me. So okay. I would take Martin and a different world, hands down. Okay. You not a living single fan? Mm, I watched it. Um, I don't know that I ever watched it with the loyalty that I watched the other shows. See, I enjoyed all three shows. Um, I watched all three, but I would have to agree with you. I probably would take Martin... And a different world as well. A different I, world made me want to go to college. Yeah, definitely. A different world definitely played a part in the enthusiasm over HBCU life. And I know for many of us, it was like that that bird's eye view into what it could possibly be like. And and we loved it. And we wanted to see it. It was at a time where HBCUs were just... The, the just popping just the idea of going and you think about the movie school days and then you think about a different world i mean for some of us that was our introduction to like wait a minute for sure brought a brought a lot of that to our to our consciousness so exactly. for for that and then martin of course one of the 
you know, one of the all-time great comedies. Martin was hilarious from the characters he played. Oh, you yes. know, then, of course, you got Martin Gina was. and Pam and Tommy and Cole. I mean, it was just a great ensemble right. of, of people to, uh, you know, cast to put together to make such uh such a great tv show and so a little single was too though set in the d yep it was fictionally set in detroit that's for sure that's right that's right Um, but living single was too i mean not to say you know if i'm picking two because we because that's the segment i loved kyle on living single like he and alexander max max maxine yeah maxine Maxine. Maxine shaw her and kyle were definitely my favorite characters yeah for sure but wait overton now, Overton was my well, was I was hilarious. Say, Overton was my favorite. Was the dynamic hilarious. with him and um Sinclair, Sinclair mm-hmm. was was always funny to me. It was always always I mean, hilarious. It, it was just very well written. Great comedy, great comedic timing. And they always had a, a lot of guest stars. I think right. that was the appeal. But so did Martin, right? Like Yeah, Martin did a lot of guests. You know, you know, he had Biggie was on an episode. Mm-hmm. That was a very memorable one. Probably Shira my. Leonard. That was like one of my favorites. Tommy Hearns. Is it Tommy Hearns? It was Tommy Hearns. Oh, yes. Okay. They got you. Got to play into the Detroit thing with Tommy Hearns. Tommy Hearns from oh, Detroit. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that was. I was gonna say that was probably my one of my favorite guest appearances from Martin when he when he boxed Tommy Hearns for sure. Oh yeah, that yeah. Ep- that episode is classic for classic. sure. So we are unanimous in our take two choice this week. We're go- we both mm-hmm. take. A different world and Martin and we eliminate Living Single, although we both acknowledge that Living Single was a great show. The next take two, um, I'm gonna come up with something. Right, let me ask All right, cause you. I got one that's I got one that's gonna blow your socks off, but you know. Okay. Well why didn't we have that one today? <laughs> no, I'm I'm saving it. I'm saving it. I'm saving it. <laughs> For what? I'm saving it. So Black Excellence. Yes. There's always some black There's always some black excellence going on. For sure, for sure. But we recently had the SAG Awards. It's award season for mm-hmm. movies, for music as well. I think the Grammys and the Oscars are both in February. We're recording this late January, so the SAG Awards just went down. Mm-hmm. And one of our favorite movies of 2018 won two awards at the SAG Awards, including the big one and we're talking about black panther of course wakanda wakanda forever black panther won the award for outstanding performance by a cast in a motion picture which is the big award at the sag awards so kudos to the cast of black panther they beat a star is born which is the lady gaga Bradley Cooper movie. They beat Black Klansman, which I I really expected. A Star Is Born to kind of sweep things. Yeah, they're kind of the Oscar favorite on the chatter. Yeah, they're kind of the Oscar favorite for best film. So we'll see. I saw. I did not see it. Yeah. So, um, but they beat out A Star Is Born, Black Mm -hmm. Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, which is the Queen biopic. And Crazy Rich Asians, which I'm not familiar with that. How are you not familiar with this movie? movie? It was like huge. Was it a comedy? Um, kind of. It's it's one of those. What do they call it? Rom com. So romantic comedy. Okay, got you. Wow. Okay. So so Black Panther, outstanding performance by a cast in a motion picture. Also at the SAG Awards, Mahershala Ali won Best Supporting Actor for Green Book. Which he, has some controversy around yeah, for the sure. movie. Yes, but, the family um, of the character he plays was not happy with the way he was portrayed in the movie. They said there was some inaccuracy. So, nonetheless, 
uh, Mahershala Steele won the award. He's also nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Act- Actor as well mm-hmm. for the same role, of course. Yeah, huge, huge. In addition to winning uh, the Best Ensemble in a Motion Picture Award, Black Panther also won Outstanding Performance by a Stunt Ensemble in a Motion Picture. So we know it was an action-packed movie. So kudos to Black Panther for winning both of those awards at the SAG Awards. It's just black excellence everywhere, and that's going to continue as we move on to the Oscars. The aforementioned Black Panther received several Oscar nominations. Um, Of course, they are the first Marvel movie, the first superhero movie, quote-unquote, to be nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. So that's that's great. That's pretty big. That's huge because Because there are so many. Yeah, there's so (laughs) many, and there are actually some really good ones. So, yeah, so Marvel has definitely been cranking out some good movies. And so for Black Panther to be the first to be nominated for a Best Picture Oscar is huge. Uh, Spike Lee, first time he's ever been nominated for... So surprising. The first time he's ever been nominated for Best Director. That for... is just crazy to me. Like, did these people not see Malcolm X? Like... Yes, that's what I was like. But he didn't get it for Malcolm X. I'm like, well, you just run off all the list of the Spike movie, Spike Lee movies. Do the right thing. Malcolm X are some, some great ones that stick out. And it's like, wow, he's never been nominated for Best Director before. But he is now for Black Klansman. Jordan mm-hmm. Peele is a producer of that movie as well. So he could possibly win um, mm-hmm. another Oscar as well there's some history being made also because we have uh, i think the first african-american woman who's being nominated for a production design oscar hannah beachler so yes we have to give them a shout out as well regina king nominated for if bill Bill street Street could talk Talk. Mm -hmm. so that's awesome as well we talked about um, mahershala ali nominated for green book So we have the potential for some African-Americans to win a few Oscars, which is always a great thing because you get like one or two every couple of years or so. Yeah, so a lot of black excellence going down here with award season right around the corner of actually have already, you know, begun with the SAG Awards. So we'll see how things turn out for the Oscars. Looking forward to it. I don't know that I'll make it through watching the whole thing. It's usually pretty boring at some parts <laughs> yeah but we definitely and of course they save um the best for it last so that you watch the whole thing did they ever get a host i think they have decided that they are not going to move forward with the host this year mm. obviously we know what what went down with kevin hart and him uh i guess declining or or ultimately declining the invitation to host the oscars they they were trying to get him back. I know Ellen DeGeneres was really pushing hard to try to get him back. He decided against that. So my understanding mm-hmm. is they're moving forward without a host. Which is probably the best route to go because anybody in that in that role at this point stands to be overshadowed by the controversy of it all. And I'm glad that Kevin decided to stick to his original plan to just sit this one out. Who knows what the future could bring, but, you know. So black excellence everywhere. Kudos to all the actors, actresses, movies that are up for awards this award season. Best of luck to you all. We'll definitely be watching. Okay, let's talk about um, moving from the, the greatness that is black excellence to 
who has the most caucasity moment of this week? So I'm sure we've all seen. Wait, wait, wait. What what exactly exactly is a caucasity moment? Explain um, that to the people. That is when our Caucasian friends have way too much audacity to do the just unreal, just the too much. The I'm gonna need you to have a seat. The extra. The extra known okay. as caucasity all right that is what that is so this week we're going to hand that out to mr tom brokaw for his comments about how hispanics should work harder to assimilate to be considered i guess his version of what good americans are or should be so he made these comments about hispanics needing to work harder to assimilate and speak the language and not speak Spanish and just all of these things followed up by some tweets to try to explain himself, which we know how that always goes for anyone. Well, it's Twitter. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to go left. Yeah. It went left at when he made the comments. Of course. Of course. Um, And within those comments, he also stated (laughs) something about, you know, people not wanting brown grandbabies i should i should throw the quote in um just so that we're being accurate but yeah it was just all left and there's a lot that could be said about all of this one being that assimilation is a whole animal topic within itself that actually i've brought up to you that we may discuss in more detail on future shows just like from where we are as as black Americans right now and parents. One thing that came from Tom Brokaw's comments that is a good thing is just that that truth is out there. Like that truth that he feels that way. We know that many others feel that way and probably haven't said it. And this is what they're thinking. You know, this is what your middle-aged um, he's beyond. He's he's beyond middle age or Tom older. Is like Anglo, 70. white male American. Not all, but some are thinking um, that you need to assimilate better. We don't want you mixing with us and making brown grandbabies. Like th- these are thoughts and that people like him are having. And you know where do we go from here? Yeah, I think the issue more so is it. I mean, because I think it's very a huge stereotype to say, well, you know, Hispanics need to do a better job learning English. Like, what statistics do you have to back up that they aren't learning English? In fact, but, but why does why does coming here and speaking your native language why is that consider anything that is of less value? When every in every other part of the world globally being bilingual is a plus other countries require children in of school age to learn. Sure. But maybe that's maybe that's his point. I'm you know, I'm I'm playing a little devil's advocate here. Maybe that's his point is that if they you're saying bilingual is a good thing. Well, he's saying, well, they're coming over and they're not learning the English language. So are they really bilingual or are they just coming over speaking, you know, Spanish? We know that that's not the case. We know that Hispanic people are absolutely learning English just fine. In fact, we have, you know, relatives 
who um you know who are originally from Mexico right and they Mm -hmm. speak english just fine are very well educated do very well for themselves but at home they do consistently speak spanish correct and i think the point here is is that his with his mentality him with his mentality and many other men like him men women whatever um they see that as a problem like the scene that i'm picturing in my head right now of us being with our family around a holiday or whatever and there are several conversations going on within one room or within the house and you're hearing one conversation that is happening in spanish and another conversation that's happening in english he is saying that is not what should happen which is a little bit crazy yeah and i think the issue that Uh, white Americans are having who share this point of view is that they're having an issue and I saw this I saw someone say this on Twitter so I can't even take credit for for this thought but it made me think obviously reading it but they basically are having a problem you know assimilate assimilating to diversity is what they're having an issue with Basically, a lot of people feel like what Tom Brokaw is saying is that you know Hispanics shouldn't assimilate but that Hispanics and any other race of people should just stop coming to America and we want this to be a majority white nation. That's kind of what when people make statements like this, that's well, a lot that's, of what we what, That's what double we talk though because in one hand saying to the act of assimilating is saying to be more like us and fit more seamlessly into our culture if there is such a thing as culture on, from that on that side. So that would imply that you understand. I understand that you are here and you should be here, but I want you to to fall in line more with our beliefs, with our thinking, with the way that we feel, you know, we should look, speak, behave, everything. So you can't say that and then say also that the problem is that they don't we don't want you here at all right well i mean i think i think you hear a lot of people you know you hear a lot of people especially with immigration being such a you know a hot button topic these days you do hear people say well assimilate or get out you know assimilate or leave and i mean because really a lot of you know unfortunately a lot of people who share those points of view don't want foreigners or anybody of a foreign descent here in the first place they that's, are of a foreign descent <laughs> that's the problem which is the irony in that all of is this like right? you yes. are you yourself you did not assimilate well to native americans okay that but, is look you guys were the worst at assimilating instead of assimilating you just decide to colonize so whatever and now because they were because I think now the the demographics, the you know things are changing, but because white Americans were the dominant race, and we now see, I think it's something like by 2020, 2025, something like that, the country will be majority Hispanic. You know, you see people wilding out. But I do wonder, like, what even if even once we meet or reach those statistics, what do they think is going to happen? Like. Do they think like immediately on the day that the number that I'm just picturing it in my mind as a ticker, like once that number changes and they are literally with the with the changing of like a scoreboard, that number and they are now the minority. Do they think that this revolt, you know, is just going to just instantaneously happen like it is the craziest 
thing to me. Like, what do you think will shift when that number changes? It's all about, it's all about power. That's what it's about. Well, it's It's always about about that. It's all about power. People look at numbers. It's the bigger number. So we are, we are the dominant race and so i think a lot of my god i think a lot of people feel no i'm just saying i think a lot of a lot of people who think in that vein think that once white americans are the minority that they're going to lose their and i'm now using air quotes power wow yeah okay that's an interesting concept and tom brokaw's tried to come out he's tried to he's tried to clean it up well yeah which was also a fail like what are you doing sir yeah. just just stop just yeah. and I, I, your like, your bigotry was on display so his bigotry it was like you know his slip was showing just hanging a little bit low and you just suggest and try to hope that nobody saw it but that was not the case his the comments time. were definitely bigoted you know is tom broke all racist i don't know right we 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 don't well, truly know the answer to that question his comments were definitely bigoted. You know, he's apologized for what he said, whether that's sincere or not. Nobody really knows that. I just feel like, you know, in these situations, Twitter is probably the last place that you and you're right. People probably go there because it's a place where they can clearly state their thoughts. But it's the last place I would go personally to try to get an apology for or try to apologize for anything because a lot of the trolls well, you, you, on Twitter are savages. You can't be worried about responses if you're up if your apology is truly genuine and like what you want to say or do. Like your your concern is not what the feedback will be from your apology, but more like I said, just using it as a means to to share your thoughts in your own words. But either way, he clearly is a bigot. He said that those words came out of his own mouth and I mean, we live in this culture of say what you think and then go back and apologize for it in some way. I mean, no. Okay. <laughs> Later for you. So fam, this week we are talking about a really um, important topic in public health right now, a public health crisis that actually um, we have firsthand knowledge of and dealt with a little bit of during the birth of our last child who um, as you know from hearing us talk about before just recently turned two so this is something that we have a connection with in our own lives and that is the public health crisis affecting black women and childbirth so black women are 243 percent more likely to suffer from complications and even experience fatalities during childbirth it's disproportionately the most the a crisis that affects just women overall more so than any other health crisis where you're seeing on in one hand our counterparts caucasian women other races of women asian women and over here at such a large difference black women being affected so there's been a lot of talk about this um, in the media in overall and in recent months years Um, more recently there was the death of a young girl 
who was 27 years old, LaShonda Hazard, died in Lincoln, Rhode Island uh, while in the hospital. Um, And she actually just died January 7th of 2019. She died while being in the hospital, having reported to the emergency department of the hospital there in Rhode Island, complaining of abdomen pain and at the time uh, was pregnant and, you know, and expressed that she was pregnant and that um, she was suffering from great pain, but she ended up dying and subsequently Uh, The infant died as well. So black women die due to childbirth and pregnancy related complications three to four times the rate of our white counterparts. And, you know, we're definitely not professionals equipped here to debate why that is. But we definitely want to have a discussion about, you know, how this what this is, why why this is happening and our own experience with this kind of thing. So most notably, um, I just told you guys about LaShonda Hazard, but you probably also heard um, about Judge Glenda Hatchett's daughter-in-law also. Judge Hatchett from the popular TV show. Right, right. right. Her daughter-in-law also dying um, during childbirth. Um, The daughter married to her son, Charles Dixon, The daughter was Kira Dixon Johnson. She was 39, uh, reported to Cedar Sinai's hospital with a healthy pregnancy, no complications. She was a very um, healthy woman and she reported for what was to be a routine C-section and never left the hospital, actually passed away there. So these are just some of the stories that we know about this. Um, We, in turn, have our own story about just being ignored in a hospital setting. And we know that, you know, Serena Williams even talks about being ignored. Beyonce as well. Yeah, having been in the hospital to have a child and just not feeling heard. Definitely not pain management. We hear stories about pain management not being really considered for black women on a disproportionate scale for whatever reason, I don't know. I mean, some there are some biases within the medical field where, you know, they show themselves as as these medical professionals somehow believing that black women are able to handle more pain or just not believing that we have the pain levels that we that we say they they do. For us personally and our experience, I did have with each pregnancy complications no major complications um because there are things out there that you can suffer from that are a bit more a bit more of a problem but there was gestational diabetes some other issues but but nothing like that so um but I was diabetic and with us we had a scheduled c-section for our last delivery and I was told I had been on insulin, I don't know, from somewhere around even earlier in this last pregnancy than I had been in previous pregnancies. So I want to say around maybe 16, 20 weeks, I actually started insulin um, and just some history there. Gestational diabetes is diabetes, obviously, that you (laughs) develop when in gestation, when you are carrying um, a child. So 
maybe you're not diabetic and haven't been diabetic. I actually developed gestational diabetes with each of the three pregnancies. So I was insulin dependent. And um, obviously, um, there's a whole caveat of things that comes along with that. So we had a C-section schedule for what time? I don't know. It was like early. Well, we got there early. We got to the hospital with like... I know we were late, which they weren't happy about because it was a snowstorm. No surprise there. It was Um, a snowstorm. Yeah, I think we... I want to say that we got there around 9, 9.30 in the morning. And I think we were supposed to be there like 7. Like, we were like super late. But anyway, so they told me to take my normal insulin dose, but they also tell you not to eat. So I was told to cut off my eating at, I don't know, maybe it was the night before the normal amount of time that they tell you um, to not eat before a major surgery where you're having full anesthesia. So, well, not full anesthesia, it's a spinal, but so I cut off my eating, but I was told to still take my insulin. So therein, you can probably hear (laughs) some of the issue. So there were some issues once we got there. I think they had an emergency C-section that they bumped up ahead of us. So the surgery did not happen at the time that they originally planned. It was probably three hours hours later. Hours later. Three hours later. So we're there. We're just hanging out. My mom is there. Um, Meech is there and they've kind of, you know, put us in a room, made me comfortable in a bed, but we are waiting to get into the OR. And I mean, in hindsight, I guess, you know, could I, you know, I said more about it. I don't know, but I was feeling okay for the time. But what basically um, ended up happening is we went into surgery and I was having double surgery. So I was having a C-section to deliver the baby and I was also having a uh, tubal removal not to be confused with a tubal ligation so I was actually having my fallopian tubes removed in a uh, birth control preventative measure that was the reason why I was doing that I wasn't doing that because there was any type of um, issue with my tubes so we have been told that the surgery itself everything delivery and the tubal removal would typically take about 45 minutes. So once we finally got into the OR and this surgery started, which was like we said, hours later, many hours, at least three hours after the time that we believed it to be, I got on the table and they were able to remove the baby with a relative ease or no, yeah, no, no issues. issues. She right. did have the cord wrapped around her neck twice which i guess is an issue right <laughs> technically we say oh twice. she was born with no real issues but i mean well i'm just talking about the surgery right right, right yeah gotcha. so she she did have the two wrapped around her twice so and then they moved into the tubal removal and that is where we reached some complications there was more bleeding than what they thought was good and needing to repair some veins things like that, that were kind of growing with fibroids, which they knew that I had. So that wasn't a surprise. Everybody knew about the fibroids. They did not give me a scan that I was supposed to have before. They had talked about doing an ultrasound right before the surgery that ended up not happening. And I'm not sure why that occurred, but I do think it contributed to the problems that they ran into during yeah, the surgery. Because the doctor did comment after the surgery was over how they did not anticipate you having as many 
fibroids. Well, that was um, that was a conversation that we had, which you probably don't remember because you were you were out of it. But that was a conversation. We well, had I know the surgery that they they basically went in blind. There was an ultrasound that was supposed to happen before the surgery because the surgeon was not my regular doctor. And, you know, other than the ultrasound, you know, probably would have no way of knowing what he was foresight of what he was about to deal with or view. So, but they made me think that this was just all standard, you know, um, and I won't say made me think, but gave me information that this was all standard procedure. I had asked a lot of questions about the surgery because obviously it's major surgery. You're having a portion of your body removed, um, which isn't ideal or typical in the past i know many other women have had tubal ligation where you know you hear being of tubes being tied and being burned and that kind of thing so i asked a lot of questions about that because i didn't know that 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 there were other options besides that so what i was told is tubal ligation is not something that they do a lot of anymore and i think the reason why that i was given is that it's you know it's not always it's not always 100%, things like that. I don't know. So I was told that the, the way that they they do that now most commonly are fissures or clamps that they place um, on the tubes to to, to make the, the it so that sperm cannot travel <laughs> through the, the tubes. And But these are clamps, metal, that you have forever. So that was one of the options that was proposed to me. And I didn't like the thought of having something inside of me forever because you just never know how that can go. You can end up, you know, you hear story horror stories about things being recalled by medical companies years later and you need to get them out or your body rejects it or whatever. I just didn't like that idea. So the other option that she proposed to me that she claimed that they do a lot of now is just full tubal removal. The other, there were supposed to be some other benefits to this. It's so-called, you know, it decreases the risk of women-related cancers and that kind of thing. Because often when they find cancers in that region, it has to do with ovaries, uterus, whatever. They say that it, they affect your tube. So it's supposed to lessen your likelihood of developing that by removing them. So I went with the option of the tubal removal. She did tell me one of the major, major concerns of the surgery that I was having. Um, and when I say she, I'm referencing the doctor that I dealt with throughout my pregnancy who was not there at the surgery at all. I don't, I never even saw her when I was in the hospital. But she did say one of the major concerns is bleeding, is, is excessive bleeding. Um, and with me having the fibroids, obviously. But she told me that she would be comfortable with the surgery, which initially she was supposed to do if she had this particular tool, which she said actually kind of is a laser scalpel that kind of, I don't know, solders or, you know, burns as you cut. So you're you experience less bleeding. She told me that she had to check with my insurance and do some clearances to make sure that the tool was available, that she was able to use it. And we would make our decision based on her feedback, which she then came back and said that ultimately she ended up telling us that she did have clearance to use that tool. Um, so she was comfortable that, you know, we wouldn't have those issues with bleeding. Fast forward to the actual surgery. She's not even there. 
She doesn't perform the surgery. Never saw her once while I was in the hospital. Didn't see her until my postpartum check. Can't remember exactly why she said that was. I think it was a scheduling thing or something. And I ended up having this doctor whom I've never seen perform the surgery. He did come in and introduce himself before the surgery. Fast forward to in the OR on the table. Three hours after the scheduled surgery time and three hours into, you know, three more hours into no eating and having had insulin, the complications uh, start to occur during the tubal removal. So where I was supposed to, to be open for 45 minutes, 45 minutes went to an hour, which then went to an hour and a half. And I think we were probably past me being open on the table two hours at this point yeah i think it was somewhere around two two maybe an hour 45 it yeah was, it was so something like that. i'm still open on the table to the point where you know even the nurses for our daughter actually got to a point where they were like okay we need to yeah we, we gotta do the things we need to do for her so we so can't stay in here out. any longer this is going pretty long right and while i was still on the table a decision was made for me to go to ICU after the surgery. So they clearly were seeing that it wasn't going well. And ultimately the real scare came with me having some hypoglycemic problems. So my blood sugar went dangerously low. Right. So you began to pass out. Yes. And not have control over my breathing or speaking or things like that what I I don't know what they would say and I'm from a medical realm I'm not a doctor but for me the experience and what I felt was obviously I felt myself passing out but I also even before passing out I felt my tongue go slack like like not having control over my tongue which then felt like not being able to breathe so I don't know if that's, you know, anatomy wise, if that's really what I was experienced. But imagine laying on your back strapped to a table and your tongue and your mouth like going completely slack where you almost feel like it's blocking your airway. That's what I felt. Now, they were saying my oxygen levels were still remaining pretty good, but I definitely could not speak for a time. I was unable to speak and and I guess lost a little bit of consciousness at some point, which Meech noticed. Right, right. So yeah, I, def- I definitely noticed her kind of... He was at my head. Right, I was sitting sitting at the head. They have like a huge like, you know, kind of drape over the front. So, you know, you can kind of see the surgeons, but you can't, you know, I can't see. I, obviously, she's she's cut open, so they don't want you to to see that but of course you hear the chatter and you hear the talk and and things of that nature but at that point I was kind of just focused on what was going on with her and I kind of noticed her fading a bit and so I got the nurse's attention and said hey I think she's like passing out or or you know something is something is going on and so the nurse would come over and and try to talk to her and you know try to keep her alert keep her and so she would kind of you know fade out and then she would come back she would kind of fade out and she would kind of, you know, kind of come back. And so it got a little scary, needless right. to say. But, uh, yeah, it was definitely um, definitely a scary situation. Obviously, our middle daughter 
was also a c-section an emergency c-section yeah, uh, in her case it was an emergency c-section and it wasn't yeah uh, the and that was time. quick yeah i'm talking about like i had to drive to the hospital because martha was already there and i mean it was like i walked in the door got on scrubs i sat outside while they got the or ready for like five minutes they called me in it was like 10 minutes 15 minutes or it seemed like it was that quick and it was like, boom, baby is here. Well, they and were waiting we for on. you to do the surgery right. thing because yeah, they, they kept threatening me that if you weren't there <laughs> soon, that they just had to do it. So yeah. I remember panicking, like, I can't do this by myself. And them just telling me, okay, well, if he's not here by this time, we're going to have to go. Yeah. And so, so I just remember, I just remember from that experience, it being such a quick thing. And then to go from that to this, it was, it was definitely, definitely scary for sure. So the experience itself, you know, clearly I'm speaking to a lot of complications. Some, you know, they don't have the foresight to to know that that can happen. So um, maybe not, you know, medical, any medical negligence there. But there were definitely breakdowns in communication and breakdowns that happened that could have been avoided. I mean, the fact that I think my blood sugar when they took it after me literally passing out on the table and having those reactions was something like... 30 it was super low low. so I mean that was a matter of communication that could have occurred of them um, speaking to the nurses beforehand like I said there was a a scan an ultrasound scan that was supposed to happen before the surgery that you know was ordered and they were waiting on the machine and scheduling things happened where I got bumped back and then by the time when they were ready to take me in I guess Someone just decided we didn't do the scan yet, but we have the OR. Let's do it anyway. So what was found that ended up being causing problems during the surgery could have been seen beforehand. But there was also speaking to this culture and this issue of women really not being taken seriously and not being heard. So we got to a point where things were swinging up, I guess you would say, from if there is such a thing from this experience. So now I'm to the point where I literally had to just like hard line, just give it a, a nurse the business. I got to a point on a particular day, I think Meech was gone, don't even know where he had gone to. But I was there at the hospital alone. I know my mom had come. Or maybe I was waiting for my mom to come. But it was during one of the times that I was in the room by myself. And I was still in ICU. And at this point now, though, they're telling me I'm well enough to be moved to the section where all mothers go after giving birth. So it's just a matter of time of waiting for a bed. So I'm disconnected from machines. But still, everyone is telling me that I just wait to see my baby like once I get on the unit with the other mothers your baby is with you in the room so you know basically there's nothing keeping us from one another at this point but the availability of a bed and they thought that that was okay so after spending another day like that you know I just had to tell this nurse I'm like look I I don't care like Either I'm going to get up out of this bed and you're going to tell me where the where the unit is where um, my baby was being kept in their version of a NICU, basically special care, because she has some um, hypoglycemia at birth as well. Or and I'm going to walk over there on my own or something. Something's going to happen. 
So I finally got a nurse that was like, what? You know, this is crazy. You haven't seen your baby? No, I'm going to get a wheelchair. I we will, you know, I will roll you over there. We will figure this out. And so the first time I'm then rolled to the NICU to hold my baby, I noticed um, by the time she does all this, I think Misha returned. And so the first time we go over there is my first time being out of bed for any length of time. It's my first time sitting upright for any length of time. So I'm rolled to this other area of the hospital. And I noticed that after about mm, 20 not even that long, maybe 20, maybe 30 minutes, I have like this horrible headache. And I don't, and I almost hate to describe it as a headache because it really was more like a pressure on the back of my neck. But I'm feeling this pressure on the back of my neck that's like an ache. And I think, oh, this is weird. And I was like, you know, I remember telling me, like, I'm so happy to be with this baby and I'm feeding this baby. And he had been over there several times already. He had been with the baby. He had gone for feedings, but it was my first time being able to do it. Um, and I think prior to that, they were having trouble with her taking milk. And yeah, he was, a little bit. And he was praising me like, oh, this must have been what we needed because she's drinking more now with you than she has for the nurses or for me. Now she has no problem drinking or eating anything. <laughs> right. So. so it was a it was a celebratory time. And I almost I I was so emotional that I had to cut it short because I just got this horrible headache and I didn't equate it to being over there I just was like I don't know what's happening but I'm like I'm hot I'm sweating you know I feel this pressure in the back of my neck and my head you know something is bad so let me get back to bed so he rose me back and the next feeding I think we tried again and the same thing and I started to I remember even joking with him I was like maybe it's something over here in this room like she was in this little room in the NICU I'm like do they pump some special air in here like oxygenated air or something so but it's so weird that I here I am again and I feel this headache so next day I'm at the hospital and I just want to get out of the bed like I'm tired of being in the bed so, you know, of course, I'm trying to pump too. So I remember being there again. I don't know why I was by myself in the room, but I, I remember that he wasn't there, that he had stepped out for a minute. And I tried, I moved to the rocking chair in the room thinking I would sit up and pump. And I was sitting in the chair and again, this headache starts. Like the time that I'm upright. So then I finally realized, like, wait a minute, like every single time I sit up for any length of time, I get this this crazy headache and by now I've told two different nurses so I told a nurse you know the night the evening that we came back from the NICU that it occurred and I think there was a shift change so by that morning I think I had told another nurse and so now we're here and we're talking there's talks about discharging me and I'm telling the nurse you know I have this really bad headache Every time I would say I had this headache, they would take my blood pressure because, again, like he just mentioned, there is, you know, a predisposition. I don't know for black women to preeclampsia and they would take my oh, let's check your blood pressure. And they would check my blood pressure and it was normal. And they would say, oh, well, your blood pressure is normal. Let's just give you some Tylenol. Three different nurses. I see the surgeon. They tell me, you know, before we discharge you, we want this. you, You should see the surgeon. So he comes in never forget the first day that they were supposed to discharge me early morning because you know doctors only come around at six o'clock in the morning and they're done for the day and I tell him and even he says oh well your blood pressure is normal just take some Tylenol so it is not until nurse number four 
who is the one who is bringing me my discharge paper. She's literally the person who's just doing paperwork. She just got on shift. All she really needs to do is get me out of this room. And she's writing up paperwork and working to discharge me. And she, I tell her, I am really struggling with this headache. And she could have been the one, she had the easiest job. Like literally all she had to do was get me out of the door. I think at this point they were only waiting for um, the pharmacy to bring me up some medication that they were sending me home with. So her job really is done. And I tell her about this headache and she's the first person to immediately say, well, that sounds like, and I wish I could tell you guys what the true medical term is for it. But she basically explained it's something that can happen when you get a spinal, which is not that uncommon. So why these other three nurses and a doctor, a surgeon never took me seriously um, when I was saying about the headache I don't know but she like immediately when I explained it to her like some light bulb went off and and she was like oh yeah we need to call the anesthesiologist to come in and talk to you and so that they can see if this is what this is and what it basically was they described to me was I had a a air pocket where in my spine uh, spinal fluid where they had gone in for the spinal that I have for the initial surgery. So the way that they alleviate that and eliminate that air pocket that then is causing this pressure for you is to go back into, they have to go directly back into the exact incision where the needle was for your original spinal. And they take blood from another part of your body to fill the pocket of air that's developed there. So they had to take blood from my leg. So they take your own blood and then they uh, go back into that, that original needle puncture, which when I tell y'all that shit <laughs> hurts <laughs> to have, I mean, you're already, you know, feeling, feeling some soreness there. And when they go back into that original puncture, it is like no other pain I have felt before from a puncture. And, and they just, they fill that pocket with your blood and they have, and you have to lay flat for, I don't know, what was it like an half hour, an hour? They wanted me to lay completely flat after this was done. And they say that you almost immediately feel relief. Like they talked about how people have said like instantaneously, this headache goes away. That wasn't my experience. So there was a little bit of, um, of hope and, or if you will, doubt where we were like, okay, well, this is this was this really the problem? Because I did not feel that instantaneous pressure relief that they talked about, but it did come. It did come. So when I tell you, we were all but checked out to the point where I mean, I think Meech was was really he was so ready to go that I don't even know that he cared that I had a headache anymore because he <laughs> I was just ready to get that, out of this hospital. I was definitely ready to go, he, you know, but was, it wasn't about me. But yeah, he I was, was not was happy to know that we had to stay another day after I had this procedure. Like once they said that they were going to ha- do the procedure and the anesthesiologist and a resident uh, anesthesiologist came in to lay me down and they tried to like create the sterile environment inside of this room, which was crazy. So that we wouldn't have to go back to an OR. And um, when he learned that the procedure they were doing meant staying another day, like his face 
his attitude was like I was like why don't you go outside you don't smoke but go outside and have a cigarette go outside and walk it off he needed a minute I don't smoke but just the thought that I was so afraid of leaving the hospital with that headache because I knew something was wrong I knew something was not right um and I was so fearful of what coming home with that would be like because I knew that I had a newborn that needed constant care and I'm in a space where literally every time I sit upright for more than 30 minutes I have this horrible headache and the only relief I get is to lay back flat like so I knew that that would not be possible for our lives coming home with a newborn or long term and coming home with a newborn with other children in the house to take care of so I mean just I went through so many emotions during that time. One frustration that no one was really listening to me. I felt so invisible and so unheard. And two, um, just pure fear. I mean, to the point of when we got so close to the discharge actually happening and papers being drawn up to discharge me, I will say the fear even took on more of a terror, like anxiety, the anxiety, like I, for what I just explained, like I knew I was going to be home and I was going to have to have many responsibilities. And I was feeling this horrible pain every time I set upright um, for any length of time. So I was just, I was terrified of what, that was would be like and I knew no one was really hearing me no one was really caring what I was saying about what I was feeling so it's like a helplessness and being ignored and I cannot stress enough for us women and women in pregnancy and seeing doctors and being in a, ho- in a hospital environment how important it is and, and we've seen in these cases like we talk about the case of Kira Dixon Johnson where I don't even know that this matter but it is so important to have advocates there for you your family be willing to be the advocates for you to speak up because we kind of take on this kind of feeling or approach that they're doctors, they're the professionals, they know what to do. And you do feel like that and you and you accept what they say. And some, like I said, the first nurse said, oh, your blood pressure's fine. We'll give you this. We'll, and you just need, if you are in this, in these situations, I think as, as the woman that went through it, I just, I'm like, we cannot advocate for our family enough. Like when you're pregnant or you just delivered a baby or you're in any position where you're being cared for in the hospital and you are being given, you know, pain medication, drugs or whatever. I think it's almost an automatic um, reaction for people maybe to not to take you seriously or just maybe you think you're like out of it or. It's weird. You you don't have all of your faculties, so maybe you don't know what you're talking about. I know, um, and and just you speaking about this, I was, you know, there's a doctor article I was reading, uh, Gene DeClerc, who's a professor um, at Boston University. He says that, you know, basically what you're saying when asked about the disparity of outcomes for women of color during childbirth, DeClerc cited an issue of not listening to minority mothers and of not taking the problems they are reporting seriously. So, like you said, it's definitely, definitely an issue. Um, I can definitely say, you know, child number three, you know, when I saw you like passing out, I was, <laughs> I was freaking out. Cause look, I'm like, look, you not about to die on this table and leave me with these three girls by myself. So I'm like, Hey lady, 
you need to come over here because this don't this don't look right. Where, but but like you said, as a as a as a man, right, as the the father in these situations, and one of the potential advocates, because you know I think with the birth of our oldest daughter, my mother in law was present as well, and then with the last two, it was just just Martha and I. So you do take the word of a of a doctor and and what they say because it's like, well, I I don't know. Right, and so but maybe you, you're but less... you know your loved one, like sure. So when someone looks at you in your eyes and says something's not right, something's right. not right. Then... And I mean, and I could in in this situation with with the birth of our youngest, I could visibly see that something was happening, and so of course I was more inclined in that situation to speak up. But even when you were experiencing the headaches, you know the the one thing that I I, I would say is that you know you're you're experiencing that so you have to describe to because at this point you you have all your faculties you're like you said they're about to discharge you so i'm like yeah because they just want to communicate you have to communicate what's going on and what this pain is obviously in situations where you're incapacitated and not able to speak for yourself you definitely want to have those those family members and loved ones in place to advocate for you. Well, I think when I'm talking about advocating, it's not just like for a person that is unable to speak. I mean, we here I was able to speak. I think you need advocates that will stand up and kind of speak for you when you're being unheard, when you're being ignored as well. Right. So not just and believe you like doctors and nurses they don't know you you would think that they you know just in their their level or of empathy and care um but maybe they become desensitized i don't know what the yeah, situation and I never, is and I don't know that but I if you know your loved one you believe you should believe them over all else so if a person is constantly saying that this that something is wrong right. and they are completely able to say this and it's just a matter of medical professionals not really taking them seriously advocate in that way like of look, course I yeah, mean, I, don't I be afraid that. to stand up to the professionals and say listen you know m- my mother my sister my wife has been saying go don't you know ask for the a nurse supervisor or don't be afraid to shake things up or rock the boat or ruffle feathers or you know if you have to demand that your doctor come in when it's not their rounds or give a call or get on the phone or talk to a nurse supervisor and we actually had an opportunity to do that but I think going back to the LaShonda hazard which is a tragic situation you know I walked away from the hospital with uh, my baby um, and she did not. So we're we're talking about our personal experience, but clearly, you know, I'm still here to talk about this. Um, and this wasn't something that ultimately, you know, took my life and and was not, you know, it was it didn't get to that point. But this girl, you know, 27 years old, was in the hospital and was actually in a text conversation with her best friend, where she explained. And or implied that she did not feel that the medical staff at the hospital where she was was taking her seriously and said, you know, speaking to her pain level said, I'm literally dying. Like those are her exact words on the text to her friend. I am here and I'm literally dying. And ultimately she did die as well as her baby. And 
you know, we just have to really look at what is happening here in the medical world in our country where we're just not being heard, not being listened to. Serena Williams um, had previously had very notable problems with pulmonary embolisms and goes in to have her baby starts to develop some of the symptoms that she identified as being you know problematic after delivery and she she and her husband speak to that she was telling she is now telling the medical staff something is wrong I you know like I've had this before there's an issue you know there was a wait to get an ultrasound where they ultimately found you know, more pulmonary embolisms in her lungs. But in the case of Kira Dixon Johnson, whose husband now has become just a great advocate, he has spoken in front of uh, Congress in a congressional briefing on maternal mortality and in response to losing his wife and having two young sons. He talked about in their particular case, again, the ball being dropped and things not happening and waiting for procedures that could identify further problems. In their case, he saw that his wife's catheter filled with blood. She was complaining of symptoms, seemingly not getting better, complaining of shortness of breath, just being in a lot of pain for hours. And he says that there was a point in time where they said, okay, well, we need to have an ultrasound. You know, they were going to to have an ultrasound to look at her belly and see, you know, try to find the source of the pain that she was complaining about. He talks about how hours went by of waiting for that to happen. One hour, then two hours. Then ultimately her condition declining so, so badly that, Without the scan, they decided we got to get her into surgery only to open her up and find that she had been bleeding internally for the entire time um, since she had delivered. So which is ultimately what took her life. Right. And the interesting thing about this, you know, this issue is that it does not usually when you when you see health disparities like this, usually there's some type of you know, financial or status gap. And that's not the case when it comes to this, this issue of black women, you know, and the rate that they die during, during childbirth. It doesn't matter if they are lower income, middle-class, upper-class, wealthy. It just seems like this issue of, I mean, look at Serena Williams. Right. Right. One of the things that the doctor I mentioned earlier talks about is, you know, how in the case of African-American women, particularly with lower incomes, a lot of times they have to get on Medicare when they are pregnant. And generally you can't obtain Medicare until, you know, the doctor confirms that you are pregnant. And so a lot of times what happens is these women come in with pre-existing conditions, right? And that could lead to, you know, to further complications in childbirth but the doctor points out that really it seems like all the doctors care about is you know the deliverance of the baby and once that takes mm-hmm. place because that's the, where the money is right the health of the woman at that moment or or even long term is is kind of discarded and that's a very unfortunate thing so it is very important that 
you know, we advocate. Um, the YouTube video with Kira Dixon Johnson's husband, Charles Dixon. You know, we're going to share that on our social media pages, you know, as a reference. So if you guys want to go back and, and, and watch that. You can kind of just see how even in her, after her passing away, he's still advocating for her. And advocating for, you know, black women, you know, all over the world who are going to, you know, at some point. I mean, this is a public health crisis. And we really need to see on a national level, some government oversight of this problem and acknowledgement of this problem and a call to action to how we can how we can lessen this gap for for black women and for black mothers i mean yeah we have to do more than just count the statistics from from a government side of things i mean track it yes but okay now it's such a widespread problem at this point going forward like where what do we do about it so right now there is a bipartisan bill that was introduced to congress in march i guess of 2017 actually it is the preventing maternal deaths act of 2017 that has not yet passed in the house or senate but this bill um, was introduced to support state efforts Um, to prevent these maternal deaths and eliminate the disparities in maternal health outcomes. So that is something that is still out there that, you know, when we talk about, as I just said, needing government intercession um, and acknowledgement of this problem, maybe that is the start. Maybe, you know, we need to be talking to our legislators to try to get this bill past that's just been sitting out there you know as many bills do i mean they sit there for a long time sometimes if there's no one advocate advocating or lobbying to get them through but this is this is out there in the house and senate and and maybe going forward we'll see more more action or and more traction and more work around getting something like this passed yeah and until then you know we continue to speak up and continue to advocate for those who need us to advocate on their behalf, you know, when they are, you know, in the care care of these doctors doing childbirth is very important. So we want to thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Different Stokes podcast. Uh, be sure, if you haven't already, to listen to our previous episodes. You can do so via Anchor. You can also do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much any platform that has podcasts, you will find the Different Stokes podcast. We also appreciate your feedback. So whatever platform you listen to our podcast on, please like it and rate us as well. You know, five stars would be great. But, you know, we also appreciate constructive criticism and feedback. So if you have that, you know, we'd appreciate that as well. Be sure to subscribe. Be sure to share as well. So once again, thanks so much for listening. We will check you guys out next time. Peace, fam. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Different Stokes Podcast. Be sure to tune in to our next episode. 
You can also keep up with our podcast and download previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcasting outlets. As always, we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Peace, fam.